if I show you a photo and then I ask you, look, here's a slider, move it uh, right or left and to point out how much do you think is a positive image versus this is a negative image. Then you tend to put it in, in our sample, you tend to put it more towards negative when you see these pictures with large gatherings of people. Uh, so maybe it's because, you know, we have now internalized fear of large gatherings of people, um, you know, possibility of spreading the virus. Therefore, you, you see that in a negative way, in a more negative way. Hey, everybody. Thanks for checking out our podcast, Understanding Our Place in the World. The podcast is brought to you by the Department of Psychology at the University of Essex. My name is Philip Casalino, and I'm an experimental social psychologist at Essex. My guest today is Dr. Sebastian Korb. Sebastian is an experimental psychologist at Essex with a range of experience and a particular focus on the brain processes underlying facial recognition and facial mimicry of emotions. We spoke recently about his past work and about recent research he's conducted on the social psychological consequences of social distancing measures and on the effects of face masks on facial recognition and on social interactions. So Sebastian, thanks for joining the podcast. Uh, it's really nice to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me, Phil. Wow, it's my pleasure. Uh, why don't you Why don't you tell uh, me a little bit about your background, um, sort of your academic training, and and just where you're from, and what you've done in the past uh, that led to where you are today. Yeah, so um, I have done a PhD in, I guess you could call it experimental psychology, at the University of Geneva in Switzerland, and this was in a center for research on affective sciences, so on emotions. It was an interesting center that looked at this um, uh, topic from different uh, points of view and from different disciplines. And the title of my thesis, The Neural Correlates of the Perception, Production, and Regulation of Facial Expressions. I um, looked at, um, at emotions, especially in the face, and so I measured, for example, um, the activity of the brain by putting uh, electrodes, so electroencelography or EG, on the head. And uh, I looked at um, the sort of a warming up of the motor areas that is known as the readiness potential. Yeah? Or in German, because it was discovered in Germany, it's called the Bereitschaftspotential. <laughs> okay. So, um, well, that's, that's, that's what I call it, of course. But. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I have to sometimes, uh, I say it in German just to show it off. Uh, but yeah, basically, <laughs> this, this is, has been quite um, interesting in, in psychology and neuroscience because, especially in the 1980s, Benjamin Libet at, um, in, in, in San Francisco, I think it was the University of San Francisco. He uh, did a series of studies using this uh, readiness potential, um, which had implications or at least led to uh, discussion about free will. I'm a little familiar with this work. This is um, this is uh, really uh, my understanding is is obviously nowhere near your level, but um, demonstrating to some extent that what we perceive as uh, free will and choice is actually to some extent sort of sort of stacked up in the brain, like it's already prepared to do something before we're aware that we're going to do it. Is that correct? Yeah, that, well, I, I, that at least was the interpretation. 
um, there is, of course, a debate about this interpretation. Um, I mean, tell me anything in in our research which is not debated. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, um, but 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 basically, what what Libet was showing is that uh, when you ask people to sit at the desk and you tell them move, for example, by tapping your finger whenever you feel like it, uh, but at the same time look at this. Um, clock and uh, once you have moved you know then i ask you okay uh, where was the clock's hand when you decided to move and uh, when you look at brain activity you can see that um, the brain activates before you report to have taken a decision and that's that's the beauty of this that we we would think naively speaking that we first decide to move and then we turn on our motor system and execute yeah, and tap the finger. But Benjamin Libet would sort of turn this around and say, no, it's actually the other way around. You move and then you have the impression you have decided to move. But that's, that's already too late, basically. That's when you have already started um, the action. So, so and, your PhD thesis, how did, the, how did that work to advance or extend or challenge any, what, you know, any of those sorts of, what was the work in, in relationship to this original task? Yeah, so this um, readiness potential has been investigated uh, mainly with finger tapping or movements of the hand or wrist. And I was interested in seeing whether we can record it also before unilateral smiles, so, you know, smirking on one side of the face and uh, before bilateral, more, more in quotes, uh, standard smiles. And, uh, and yes, we could. So then from there, um, I was interested in going to see whether we can distinguish this readiness potential also before truly spontaneous, fast uh, um, facial expressions. But um, that turned out to be way more complicated. And mm. I could sort of stop there with this line of research. And in a way, it is telling because I was already looking at the face, looking at facial expressions and integrating facial EMG and, um, uh, and EEG. And I have sort of kept on go doing this um, yeah, for much of my later work. I also, in my research in the, during PhD, I was then started looking at facial mimicry. So uh, facial mimicry is a tendency we all have to um, activate uh, the muscles in our face that we see activated in other people's faces. Or if I say it another way, um, if I meet you in real life, or maybe even uh, over Skype or Zoom, and you are smiling at me, um, I have the tendency to smile back. Yeah? Um, often, however, these, uh, this facial mimicry is of very... A small amplitude and cannot be seen by the naked eye. It can, however, be uh, tracked if you put electrodes on the face to record electromyography or EMG. And um, I've done research to uh, basically investigate if um, this spontaneous tendency we have to imitate facial expressions, whether this will have an impact on our ability to produce voluntary expressions and to suppress them. And the interpretation that we had of that is that, okay, look, uh, very quickly when you see an emotional face, 
Um, this will induce the tendency to imitate its facial mimicry, and this will um, this is hard to suppress. It will have an effect on on even on your voluntary movements because we ask them to move voluntarily. Excellent. And then, so did you do some postdoc work, or did you just wh what was your hiring to get you to Essex? What, what was that track? Um, I uh, prepared um, a grant application um, to the Swiss Science Fund. And they financed me to then go for two years uh, to the U.S., to the University of Wisconsin, uh, in Madison. And uh, there I was between two labs, basically. So I, my main supervisor was Paula Niedenthal, who is uh, sort of uh, really well-known in the field of embodied cognition. Uh, and she has worked a lot on facial mimicry. So she's a, she's a social psychologist, if you want. Mm. And... And I was the other half of time. I was in the lab of Richard, Richard Davidson uh, and the Center for Healthy Minds. And he, well, he used to do a lot of research on emotions, um, but I would say that in the last 20 years, he has switched to uh, working on mindfulness. Uh, and and um, so he does a lot of research on, yeah, the, I guess, positive effects of uh, meditation and mindfulness on anything from brain activity to immune response, etc. And then I went to Italy. I went to a, a CISA, so that's the Italian name, but in English it would be the, Itali the International School for Advanced Studies. You, you, I don't know if this became clear, but uh, it started in the PhD and it definitely developed during my postdoc with Paula Niedenthal. I'm really coming from this sort of uh, embodied cognition or it's also called grounded cognition uh, framework. Which means that, um, yeah, it's it's really putting the emphasis on the interactions between the brain and the body. Yeah, um, mm -hmm. and in the case of in the case of facial expressions of emotions, uh, it's really this uh, this hypothesis. But there is some data backing it up. So this hypothesis that, um, yeah, we we see an emotional expressions, we tend to imitate it, and then the information from our own face that is resulting from that imitation feeds back to our brain and can influence the way we interpret that face. Might basically help us to be better or faster at recognizing an emotion. And then in, uh, in CISA in Italy, I uh, just happens to be the, the fact that I, I, I did, uh, basically I was involved in, in two publications that really went against it. And in a way it was, if you want, it was... Um, Coming from this domain of embodied cognition, it was a bit uh, of a bummer. Let's say <laughs> it, was, it was a bit of a shame we didn't find this effect. Mm -hmm. mm, but so I'm still sort of um, a believer of the importance of um, cues of, of of information coming from our bodies, um, including our the facial feedback. But uh, it might be more relevant in some contexts and less relevant in other contexts. So, um, yeah, the story gets more complicated, let's say. The government's chief medical advisor has warned against large gatherings in hot weather after half a million people flocked to beaches in Bournemouth today. Chris Whitty said coronavirus cases would rise again if people ignored social distancing. Stay at home and stay at least two metres away from people if you do have to go out. It's not such a difficult thing. Do it. That's the UK government's message to keep us apart so we don't catch or spread the coronavirus.
Let's move to um, it's sort of the the topic of the day. It seems around the world the issue of COVID nineteen and this 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 global pandemic. Uh, you actually have some research that you've conducted, I believe, with some of your colleagues in Italy uh, about COVID and and sort of people's perceptions of it and such. Why don't you talk a little bit about that work? Yes, absolutely. So um, this is work which I did with a bunch of Italians, but none of them is affiliated. Uh, with an Italian university. Instead, two are in University of Vienna and one University of Amsterdam. We were basically interested in, in looking at um, how people perceive pictures representing um, people that are either alone or in small groups or in large groups. Mm -hmm. So uh, large groups would be like more than seven. You would have, I don't know, 20, 30 people on a, on a picture. And, um, and of course, then there's another uh, element, which is how close are these people to each other? So the, 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 the reasoning we had is that because of COVID-19, uh, all of a sudden being close to each other turned into this danger, right? Because mm -hmm. you, you can catch the disease. And moreover, lockdown came and forced people to stay indoors. And, 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 and so we, we, maybe we were even craving social interaction because um in general people like to be with other people yeah they like to to share moments together that's why we that's why we we have friends we go to the bar we, we go we do do things together now all of a sudden we could not do all of this anymore uh, of, of course there was some relief with uh, skype phone etc but in a way it's it's not the same um therefore our hypothesis was that if we show these these pictures, that especially the ones where you have larger groups of people, that they would sort of mm, evoke uh, a stronger reaction in, in in our participants, especially in those that have been threatened more by COVID nineteen or that um, somehow perceived this as a bigger threat, maybe because um, in their country um, it has been perceived as a bigger threat. And, and so we, we built up this um, online study, which uh, we also pre-registered our hypothesis. That's, again, in, in this, just, uh, this belongs to this idea of doing um, science always a little bit better than it used to be done before. So we basically um, have frozen in time our hypothesis, and afterwards we can show, look, this where our hypothesis, and this is what we find or we do not find. And we recorded uh, 240 from 240 participants um, data. Uh, this was uh, these were participants who were mostly living in Italy, like 50% were in Italy, 22% were in Austria, 10% were in Germany, and then you know there were only 2% in the UK and, and and many other countries. Italy representing at this point sort of a proxy for a place where there was clear and present danger attached to the virus more i mean more so than in other places i would assume exactly exactly but anyway the, the the main finding so far if i show you a photo and then i ask you look here's a slider move it uh, right or left and to point out how much do you think this is a positive image versus this is a negative image then you tend to put it in in our sample you tend to put it more towards negative when you see these pictures with large gatherings of people. Uh, so maybe it's because, you know, we have now internalized fear of large gatherings of people 
um, you know, possibility of spreading the virus, etc., 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 and therefore you you see that in a negative way, in a more negative way. I guess that does make a lot of sense given uh, the messages we've received and the social distancing signs. It's kind of frightening how quickly we have embraced the threat of large groups of people given how important people are uh, to human beings. But it clearly has, a, has worked. The message has worked, it seems. Yeah, exactly. That's, yeah, we were uh, also surprised that this worked out uh, so clearly. The... Um, Images with large uh, gatherings also induce more arousal. Mm. Okay, I mean arousal. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to define to lay people, and uh, but it would be how intense is that emotion basically uh, that you're that you're experiencing when you're seeing that um, that image. This is good that we found this. this is interesting, but of course it would be more interesting if I could tell you what the underlying causes. Yeah, mm. I mean we just speculated what it could be. Uh, and, and and we did try to get at this by um, recording, um, so by asking them questions um, related to how much have they perceived a threat from coronavirus, how much have they been affected by it personally or in their f family or in their in their um, I don't know friends' mm -hmm. environment, and um, also we measured their perceived or their felt loneliness and how much extraversion they had. And, and so we have this bunch of questions now um, and questionnaires. And so far, you know, we are, we're just looking at the data, what is coming out there. There's nothing really obvious that strikes hmm. um, at the moment. But that, that's actually where uh, I think we have to do some more digging because it's one thing to show, yeah, people see these images as more negative. But then obviously it would be interesting to show that this is related to the perceived threat of COVID-19 sure. or something like this, yeah. I loved some of the psychological assessments you were doing, everything from loneliness to extroversion uh, and uh, your own personal connection to the experience. But my, my guess is that it will be some really nuanced or, or sort of interesting combination of the personal, psychological, and the cultural, the sort of you know, this mix between what is the bottom up from the person and the top down from uh, the government, the, the the culture that you're in and that uh, reactions to that uh, are all going to sort of interact, I'm guessing, to sort of uh, predict how people are perceiving groups. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's the thing. It, it, it is probably an intricate uh, yeah, interaction of diff of different uh, factors. So that, that makes it harder, right? Because <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> no, no doubt. <laughs> But yeah. but very important. I mean, I, I'm a social psychologist. So to me, um, and clearly some of your work is social neuroscience and um, in the past. So you have these similar interests, it seems to me. And it this is a this is a fascinating question, right? The need to belong is a classic social psych idea and to congregate and to assimilate to groups. And this this rather quick pace at which now you're demonstrating uh, from data that we have we have taken in this message that groups of people are dangerous and it yeah. you know so many questions can come from that not just the whys and hows but also to me i'm i'm want to know temporally how is this is this the new human sort of reaction to groups for how long or is it just an yeah. acute response uh, that we can place in this time uh, you know post 1918 spanish flu how long did it take before people started holding hands again 
You know, they did eventually. We congregated, but there must have been a period of time where we didn't. And I'm just kind of curious, like, what is the how how will this persist? Yeah, I, I think you just gave me a, a good idea. We should uh, do the study again now or in a few months from now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, time one, time yeah. two here could be really important, right? Has it gotten worse? Has uh, and maybe what you need to do is not just time one, do the exact same locations you did before, but now maybe add in uh, people in Florida and Texas yeah. where right, where the, the new sort of epicenters of the globe of, of the pandemic um, and yeah. see if there's a lag that repl looks a lot like the first place, but maybe in Europe now and Italy, things they're going back outside again. They're, I'm just kind of, it's such a fascinating time. And we are, we have been getting messages socially that make lots of sense, you know, epidemiologically, but from a social psychology perspective, you just, there's so many questions as what will the impact be for us moving forward? Uh, and especially in an age where we have developed so much technology that could keep us apart, right? 1918, maybe people got back together faster in groups because, well, there wasn't Zoom, there wasn't Facebook, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But we have so many ways to stay apart now, um, yeah. at least physically. And I just, so again, I didn't mean for the, uh, I just get excited by this question and the data that you have shown so quickly, it, it's working. It matters. People are responding. Again, many more questions as to why and how process is always important. But the fact that you found it just is really in just a short period of time, it, it made an impact clearly. Yes. Yeah, it was almost uh, too good to be true. You know, when you when you have an idea and it and it works out, uh, usually it's not like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> when you wear a mask, which you can certainly do, you are further pushing the agenda that is condemning all of us. Six months into the pandemic, the use of face masks is still up for debate. So. Is the recommended approach still the way to go? You've done some work on uh, the power of other people's faces and our own, uh, and how all of that potentially you know, leads to perceptions, not just of the other person, but of ourselves and maybe even behavioral changes, all in the context now of an age where more and more people around the world are wearing masks covering half to three quarters of their face. What are you thinking is going to happen here as you move forward in a world where people aren't going to be able to see what the other person's face is doing? And in fact, their own face is covered. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think that uh, people will start to express uh, emotions and thoughts and intentions more uh, visibly with other parts of their body. Yeah, so um, we will make larger gestures, for example, mm. to make sure that we are understood correctly. Um, because indeed, in uh, in times when we did not have to wear a face mask, uh, a little a little smile would have been enough to to express that we are I don't know we have a friendly um, uh, intention, um, or that we that we are, are mocking somebody or, or, or something, you know, you can express so many things with a little movement in your face. All of this, or most of it, as you said, it's, it's rather the lower half of the face, is now uh, blocked. So other people can no longer see when you're smiling or smirking. Um, 
and and you need to you need to compensate for that so you need to show uh with body posture with hand and arm movements maybe with speaking more clearly uh, although that's also another issue with with his face mask that is somehow uh, muffled your your voice and 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 even that gets affected i mean that's people don't understand each other more anymore <laughs> i put my mask on when i go to the supermarket and so yeah. often so often in the past couple of months i have had to say the same thing two or three times and i think i'm being so loud and so clear and it's just it really struck me as wow this is so difficult this you know it's one thing i i've smiled and then realized oh they don't know i'm smiling what am i smiling for uh, and yeah. then i've tried to communicate and they still can't understand it's like it's such a strange time to be trying to express yourself yeah, and, and you're a native speaker, so try doing that, uh, you know, coming from Germany or something. <laughs> <laughs> so you have found that difficult as an ad. Absolutely. Of, yeah. And, you know, I guess there's something to um, one of our colleagues, Ava, uh, who will be coming on the podcast uh, down the road. She mm -hmm. was talking about this as well, is that there's, you know, there is a benefit uh, to uh, uh not, to understanding what someone is saying to you in based on what their lips are doing right so it's even for people who are not necessarily lip readers who aren't you know ha don't have hearing deficits um i think it's connected mm -hmm. to something called the mcgurk effect and such uh, we're yes. talking more about that so so there's part of it is it that, that the masks are covering our voices and, and muffling it a bit but i think we're also not aware so often that we rely on what the mouth is doing to help in the understanding of what's being communicated. So all of that is being sort of affected uh, in this uh, social experiment we're living in. Absolutely. And um, so, so far we have been talking about the fact that uh, the mask sort of blocks uh, visual access to um, facial movement or lip movement, but there might be even another effect uh, which goes um, back to this work which I've been doing on, you know, that we imitate facial expressions and then we get feedback from our face and this might eventually influence the way we, we perceive and recognize emotions in others. So now if, if you're wearing a mask which pushes on, on your face, that not only does it preclude other people from seeing your smile, but it might even sort of affect the way that uh, you imitate other people's smiles mm. if they're not wearing a mask, or um, the way that you use feedback from your mouth, from your face um, to interpret their their expressions. So that's that's another total, that's another level of how uh, these masks might affect our interactions. If it's something that we do. Um, mirror, mimic other people's facial expressions, if there's a benefit to me and perhaps the social exchange that's occurring, what what is the downstream result of losing that benefit? Yeah. Um, so, of course, I, I have been sort of framing this uh, entire mimicry and facial feedback uh, story from the angle of, like, it helps us to understand others. But um, I'm inferring from your question that um, you're saying, but, you know, uh, if, if I mimic you, will you perceive that I'm mimicking you? And will that somehow uh, influence the way uh, you relate to me? And, and yes, so facial mimicry also acts as a, in quote, social glue in the sense that uh, we, we tend to mimic people we, we like more and in reverse, they will like us more if they see that we're mimicking. Of course, this um, should not be overdone. Uh, 
Yeah. So if 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 you ostensibly mimic too much other people's movements or expressions or or, or, or way of talking, then then they will get totally annoyed by it. So it is, <laughs> there's, there's this sweet spot basically of how much mimicry is good mimicry. Um, uh, but but yeah. So that this um, this could indeed make it more difficult for people to uh, create rapport to each other to to mm -hmm. in in, a, in an interaction um, especially maybe between people that don't know each other that well uh, we can no longer use these these little signals and these uh, synchronized signals yeah where sort of I'm imitating what you are doing and then you are perceiving that and maybe imitating back so we can no longer play this game of imitation and counter imitation as we used to. And uh, that definitely is a challenge. However, I have a positive view on that. And I think that we will adapt and we will compensate and we will find other means of expressing emotions and of showing to each other our intentions. And uh, I, I, for example, said before, you know, we, we, we might use more of our body language. So when the face is no longer available, we will use hands, arms, posture, voice. I don't know. Maybe we will start using more the eyebrows. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, already there has been shown that there are uh, cultural differences in the way that uh, emotions are expressed and perceived. And in East Asian countries, people uh, use a little bit less the, the mouth to, to, to signal certain emotions and, and they look more at the eyes. So, uh, I mean, this could totally happen that we, that we transition to an, another way of, of producing and perceiving these social cues, these social signals. I also think the thing that's fascinating to me is slightly different than the face. It's uh, particularly, it's the covering of the face, right? It is the, um, the implicit message of the threat that is in the air and, and just the, the presence of the face mask basically saying there's danger. I think things are changing also in the UK, but until not too long ago, um, maybe you and I were amongst the few wearing a mask in the in the supermarket. I, I mean, I at least I had the impression that people would judge me or people would be scared of me. Uh, like exactly. I'm basically the one bringing the disease to the supermarket uh, <laughs> when it's kind of the opposite. Um, so yeah, there is this element of the threat in the sense that the, the mask reminds uh, everybody that we are we are in the midst of a pandemic and that we should take uh, precautions when we go to crowded places and um that of course uh, this sort of lingering constant uh, reminder of uh, yeah there's a big threat out there there's something that might kill you or that might harm you that might have also negative consequences on our well-being and indirectly on the types of emotions we feel and we express and the way we express them. So, I mean, I, I'm totally speculating now, um, but it, it could be that we, that we have a shift in, um, in, in people becoming uh, less happy, not only because they can no longer show their smiles, <laughs> uh, because nobody will see them, they're covered by the mask, but also because this constant uh, sort of fear and, and looming threat um, will sort of will sort of uh, make them less happy in general and, and, and more uh, 
thinking of sadness or, or, or other negative emotions. I think you have to be honest enough to throw that out and put that on the table. I do agree with you, though, despite all of this. I, I, I do believe in, in the human spirit and resilience of human beings. And just like you were talking about earlier, I actually do think that um, we will adapt. And I think we will adapt in a way that is we're still going to be um, people who communicate, connect with, and uh, affiliate with others. Um, I think there's an acute experience that we're having um, that is threat. And our, for good reasons, threat, we respond in a way that we ought to with protection and defense. Um, we wouldn't be here today if we hadn't come from folks who do that. Um, yeah. It feels like we're at this cri critical sort of moment where we have, for the first time, in, you know, had to deal with, oh, everything that I've known, it has to change. It has to change quickly. Yeah, I, I, the, absolutely. I, I just want to sort of comment on the fact that I was surprised on how quickly um, things that uh, seemed uh, unthinkable mm -hmm. became the new normal. And um, and if you look at uh, the, the measures that countries uh, in 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 Europe in the U.S. well maybe less in the U.S. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But let's, say, let's say in Western Europe, the measures they have introduced, um, so basically the lockdowns they have introduced. Um, I mean, the, the, these have been incredible uh, measures that have really limited our freedom on so many levels, uh, and people accepted it. Well, of course, with some resistance, but generally people accepted it and people are adapting. Um, the last question, the very last question I'll ask is, yeah. so will there be facial uh, mask covering research coming out of your lab? Do you foresee that coming up? <laughs> yeah, you know, um, before we did this work with uh, colleagues on, on the COVID-19 study, we were um, throwing around ideas and one of them was like, yeah, what if we just ask people to um, to look at faces and categorize their emotions while wearing um, a mask? And uh, for some reason, then we said, like, oh, no, no, let's not do that because there's not enough control on which mask people are wearing and in which way and, and what part of the face is covered, etc. So that is always a difficulty when you are uh, dealing with um, online studies that you have less control. Mm. Um, Currently, we are not allowed to go to the laboratory, but maybe um, at some point in fall, uh, it, it is definitely it would be, I, I think I have to think about this, uh, whether I can do a, a more controlled study in the laboratory, looking at the effects of masks, uh, both on the perception uh, and the mimicry of, um, of fish expressions. That, that would be my, my angle to it. Yeah. Well, Sebastian Korb, you've been around the world, uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a little needle for your time at Wisconsin using the word fall instead of autumn. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you for coming on the podcast today. I really enjoyed having you on. Yeah, I really enjoyed it a lot. Thanks a lot. <laughs> well, thank you once again for checking out the Understanding Our Place in the World podcast. This podcast was produced by the Department of Psychology at the University of Essex. Make sure to check us out again as we'll have another interview for you to listen to next week.